In school, there was always that one kid in class who raised his hand at the end of class and asked the teacher, when are we going to use this in life? Did you guys experience that in school? And of course, the teacher didn't really appreciate that question because it insinuated that what we'd spent the previous hour learning had no point. (laughs) But to be totally honest with you, there were times I wondered myself, what's the point? For example, one of the things I remember most clearly learning from school is this statement. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. (laughs) Did you guys learn that one? I remember drawing the diagram and identifying the different parts. And I remember thinking, I can't think of a single situation in which identifying the mitochondria is going to help me in life. When am I ever going to use this statement again? But guess what? I'm using it today. So that's why you should listen to your teachers, kids, okay? I thought of another example, though. Recently, one of our office volunteers' kids was at the church working on his homework, and he asked me, of all people, for help on a question. So I looked at what he was doing, and it was long division. I could not, for the life of me, remember how to do long division. So I pulled out my cell phone from my pocket. And I remembered what our teachers used to tell us when we wanted to use calculators in class. They always said, you need to learn long division because you're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) But I did have the thought that day, man, what is the point of long division? I'm sorry to the math teachers of the world. And to be honest with you, I've had that question about other things too, more serious things. Like, man, what's the point of these bad things that have happened in my life? Or what's the point of these good things that have happened in my life? What's the point of life? Is there a point at all? What about what we're doing here today? What's the point of taking the time to go to church on Sunday? There are a lot of things we could all be doing. What's the point of all this? Is there a point at all? You ever thought about that? I know these are big philosophical questions we probably don't wrestle with every day, but I think they're actually questions worth asking. Because so often we do things just because we don't think about the why, the reason, the purpose. We just go through life and we do what we're supposed to do and we never stop to consider what's the point or what's your point, what's your reason for living and doing all that you do. That's what I want us to wrestle with today by looking at a man who knew his point, a man who lived in a way that clearly demonstrated his life purpose and who ultimately accomplished that purpose. That man is who we call John the Baptist. He's been a major figure in the first few chapters of the book of Luke that we've begun walking through this year. John, you may remember, was born miraculously to a barren couple. And from the womb, he had a clear purpose to prepare the way for Jesus. Last week, we saw John's ministry in the wilderness. He offered a baptism of repentance, which we said was a change of heart that leads to a change of action. He called people to turn away from their sin and live out a life prepared for the coming of the Lord. Today, let's continue looking at John's ministry, specifically at how he pointed beyond himself. And let's see what this means for us and our purpose Today, Look with me at Luke chapter 3. Let's start in verses 15 through 17. 
As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We saw last week that John the Baptist was stirring up things with his preaching and his baptizing. All these people were coming out to see what was going on in the wilderness. And so naturally, a lot of the Jewish people began to wonder if John could be the Messiah. That word Christ meant Messiah, and Messianic hope was a major part of Jewish teaching. God's people were longing for the Messiah to come and save them as the Old Testament had foretold. So here's John. He's out preaching this message of salvation. He's baptizing. He's assembling some followers, and people began to wonder, is this the guy? And that meant John had a prime opportunity to do what some other guys in his day had done and simply say, yep, that's me. I'm the guy. I mean, that would have been awfully appealing to him. He could have had all sorts of praise and money and fame. He could have been the guy. But that's not what John did because John knew his point. He knew his point was to point to someone else. And that's what he did. Verse 16, look again. John says, you think I'm something. There is someone much mightier than me who is coming. He admits that he's only there to point beyond himself. In that way, John was like a billboard. Billboards are designed to grab your attention and then send that attention somewhere else. Their purpose is to point you somewhere. That's what John did. And to explain to the people how much greater the person he pointed to was, he used the strongest illustration he could have in this day. He said, you want to know how much greater this guy is? I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. You see, in this time period in culture, most people went barefoot or wore sandals. They walked on dirt roads shared by people and animals alike. So it was the job of a slave to untie his master's sandals and wash his feet at the end of the day. This was the single lowliest job a person could do. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that for this guy. That's how much greater and more awesome he is. This was a remarkably humble thing for John to say. John was a great godly man, a man who changed the world. Jesus will later say of John that there's been no one born greater than him. Think about Jesus saying that. That's incredible. Jesus say, hey, of all the people born, you're at the top of the list. That's the kind of man John was, and yet he said, the guy coming after me is so much better. The evidence John gave to explain why Jesus was so much better was the greater baptism that he would bring. Look again at verse 16. Whereas John baptized with water, he said Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? Well, Christians have long debated and discussed what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. If you come from a Pentecostal or a charismatic tradition, you may have been taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience you have after conversion. So you get saved, and then later you're baptized with the Holy Spirit as a second work of God. However, that's not the view we hold to in the Baptist tradition. And I'll show you quickly why, if you'll flip with me to Acts 
chapter 1. What do we know about the book of Acts? We know that the same guy wrote Luke. Luke also wrote Acts. This was part two for him. And here in chapter 1, Jesus is preparing to ascend to heaven. He's giving his disciples their final instructions. And look at what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. At this point, Jesus' followers did not have the Holy Spirit living in them like we do. And Jesus said that's exactly what they needed if they were going to be the church and accomplish the Great Commission. And that baptism, he said, it's coming. Well, that takes us to Acts chapter 2. Flip there with me. This was the day called Pentecost. And watch what happened. Acts 2 verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This was the moment that John and Jesus were talking about. The moment in which believers became filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time. And this becomes a key part of the book of Acts. Having the Holy Spirit becomes a marker for those who trust in Jesus. Paul would later explain in his writings that the moment a person trusts in Jesus and is converted, the Holy Spirit comes to live in them. And I believe it's best to see that moment, the moment at salvation, as what John and Jesus referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So putting this all together, here's what John was telling the people. He said, me baptizing with water, that's just a symbol. It's just an act to demonstrate a person's commitment to what I'm saying. But Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit, which unlike water will actually change people. The Holy Spirit, who is God, he will come to live inside each person who has accepted Jesus. That's why Jesus is so much greater. But Jesus won't only baptize with the Spirit. John says he'll also baptize with fire. Now that can either be good or can be bad. If you think about it, fire can either purify or it can destroy. I think verse 17 is the key to knowing what he means. Look at verse 17 again. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Uh, this is an illustration that first century folks would have really been familiar with. When grain was harvested in this time, they had to separate the wheat from the chaff. And to do that, they would use what's called a winnowing fork. This was a pitchfork that would lift the grain into the air. And the good stuff that you wanted to keep, the wheat, would fall back down to the floor. But the bad stuff you didn't want, the chaff, would be blown away by the wind or a fan because it was lighter than the wheat. You would then gather up your wheat to keep and you would burn up your chaff. So here's what John is telling us about Jesus baptizing with fire. He's telling us that Jesus came to separate the wheat from the chaff, the believers from the unbelievers, those who would accept Jesus and those who would reject him. His baptism of fire would purify those who believed, but it would burn up those who did not, referring ultimately to an eternity in hell. So Jesus came in one sense to bring division. 
That's different than we often think of Jesus. Often we think of Jesus as coming to bring peace and unity and joy, which is true. But he also came to be a dividing line to separate people out. And the same is true today. Jesus is not just one option among many. He's not just something to consider to take what you like and leave what you don't. No, Jesus is the point. He's either the rock you build on or stumble over. He's the key determining factor in your life. And not just of your life here today, but also of your eternal life where you will go after you die. Think about that for a second. Think of all the big decisions you've made in your life. I think about my decision to go into ministry, my decision to marry my wife, where to go to college, our decision to move to Kansas. There are other big decisions you've likely faced. Where to spend or invest your money, how to raise your kids, which career path to follow, what health decision to make. But all of those decisions, listen to me, all of those decisions pale in comparison to the decision we each must make concerning Jesus. I mean, the job you choose, the place you live, even the person you marry, those things are huge choices. Those are decisions that we spend time really thinking through and seeking advice. We struggle and we wrestle with what to do. But those big decisions are nothing when placed next to the decision to accept or reject Jesus. Because as we see right here in Luke 3, Jesus will not only change your life now, but he will change your life forever. When we stand before God, and, and make no mistake, we will all stand before him. The one single thing that will determine heaven or hell, eternal life or eternal torment, is not the good things you've done, or if you were better than others, or more good than bad. No, it will be your relationship with Jesus. That's it. Will you accept him, trust him, follow him? Or will you reject him? Nothing's more important than that. Nothing even comes close to being more important than that. And John knew the point of his life, his reason for being, his purpose was to point people to that fact. He was to point people to Jesus Christ as the greater one to come, the greatest decision we could ever make. And the Bible teaches that you and me have the exact same purpose. It may not look exactly like John. We may not be called to go out into the wilderness and eat locusts and preach, but the purpose of our lives is the same. It's Jesus. It's simply him. He's the point, and it's all about him. Let me show you just a few more verses to justify saying such a bold thing. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Apostle Paul writes, he says, Yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians chapter 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Paul said in Philippians 1, he said, for me, to live is Christ. And Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Listen to me, guys. If you've ever wondered, why am I here? What is the point of my life? What's all this for? You don't have to wonder anymore because it's Jesus. 
Jesus is the reason you were born. He was the reason you're put on this earth. He's the reason you have breath in your lungs right now. He's the goal, the purpose, and the plan of your life. You were not made to be happy, but rather to find happiness in Christ. You were not made to be well-known, but rather to make Jesus known to the world. You were not made to leave a legacy, but rather to make Jesus your lasting impact. You were not made to have a good family, but rather to point your family to the goodness of Jesus. You were not made to contribute to society, but rather to point society to Jesus through your contributions. And you were not made to be a religious, caring, charitable, good, moral, honorable person, but to be whatever brings most glory to Jesus and good to others in his name. Jesus is the point. If you miss him, you miss everything. But if you get him, you've got it all. He's it. He's him. He's the one. So with all that in mind, let's look at the rest of our passage. Just briefly, I want to give you two truths we learned from John's life about pointing to Christ. Here's the first. Number one, pointing to Jesus comes with a cost. We see this in the next section in our passage. Look at Luke 3, verses 18 through 20. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Luke gives us here a summary of John's ministry. He preached the good news. Even though he was a rough fellow, he said some hard stuff, he was still preaching the good news of the gospel. And yet, he was locked up in prison by Herod. Why? What happened? Well, Luke doesn't give us as much detail as the other gospel writers do. But at some point, we know John the Baptist preached against Herod. He rebuked him for leaving his wife, for marrying the wife of his half-brother, who was also named Herod. It's a wild tale. But he violated several of God's laws, all while claiming to be a leader of the Jewish people. So John called him out. And Herod was not happy about that. So he had John locked up in prison, but he didn't want to kill him. And in Mark, we actually learn that Herod was fascinated by John. He actually liked talking to him. But his wife Herodias, she never got over the whole being publicly rebuked thing. So she tricked Herod into having her daughter get John the Baptist beheaded at Herod's birthday party. Talk about a really wild party. Uh, and that's how John's story comes to an end. It's an end that carries on the legacy of all the Old Testament prophets who were killed for speaking God's word to powerful people. And it's also a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus and his disciples. Jesus teaches us that there is a cost to living a life that points to Jesus. And that's true for you and for me as well. When we embrace our true purpose to glorify Jesus, it will cost us. Now, sometimes we roll our eyes at that because we know that the cost of following Jesus here in Olathe, Kansas is minuscule compared to what other believers around the world face. We didn't have to worry about facing prison time for coming to church today, and we aren't likely to be killed for what we believe. For that reason, I don't like to throw around the term persecution because I think it belittles real persecution happening in other places. I am extraordinarily free to practice my faith here in America, and for that, I'm grateful. 
But even though our cost is less than others, it doesn't mean there is no cost at all. You have to have your head in the sand to not see that we've been trending in a particular direction here in the Western world. Holding to the historic orthodox understanding of Scripture, particularly in regard to things like gender and sexuality, is costing believers in many places. And I see no reason that won't continue to get worse. But there are other costs to pointing to Jesus. Things like personal relationships, career advancement, a comfortable suburban life, a dream retirement. At the very least, we must give up comfort and self-centeredness. Listen to what Jesus says here in Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied to him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Some tough stuff. Jesus makes clear. Following him requires a consideration of what you must give up. There's a renouncing of everything that must take place. There's a cost, and that's true for all of us. Coming or living for Jesus comes with some level of loss, some level of pain. Pointing to Christ comes with a cost. John lost his life for the sake of the gospel. However, we know that wasn't really his end. Not only did he live on in eternity, but his ministry went on. Even today, we're sitting here benefiting from his faithfulness. So everything he said and did was confirmed by God's approval. And that's our second and last point this morning. Number two, pointing to Christ comes with a confirmation. Now look at our last verses, Luke 3, 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This moment right here is referenced in all four of the Gospels. And here's what we know about the baptism of Jesus. Uh, First off, we know that he was baptized by his cousin John. And people freak out a little bit thinking, why did Jesus need to be baptized, the baptism of repentance, if he had no sin to repent of? Well, John actually wondered the same thing. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus comes to be baptized, John tries to stop him. He says, no, 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 you need to baptize me, not the other way around. Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So yes, even though Jesus was sinless, he saw being baptized by John as something he needed to do. That in itself was a validation of John's ministry. He baptized the Son of God. Can you think, you think about that? 
But this moment really served to mark the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It was sort of like his inauguration. He didn't start his formal ministry until he was 30 years old. And it's this moment where he kicks things off with God placing his public stamp of approval. This is one of the moments in Scripture where we see all three members of the Trinity at once. It's one of the big reasons we believe God is one God and three persons. You have God the Holy Spirit descending on God the Son like a dove and God the Father speaking. So God is not just a God who wears three different masks. No, he's one God and three persons. And this seems to not be some sort of a private moment for Jesus, but rather a public moment for whoever was there watching. Luke says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. John the Baptist says in the Gospel of John, he saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. So there was some sort of visible manifestation, not of a dove, but of the Holy Spirit like a dove coming to rest on Jesus. And then you had the voice of God coming from heaven. He says, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. What a powerful moment of confirmation. John spent all this time saying, someone is coming. Someone is coming. He's way better than me. He's going to bring salvation. You need to get ready. And there were probably a few folks in the crowd who said, yeah, right. He's just another fake prophet. And then Jesus showed up. He's baptized. And Luke tells us that while Jesus was praying, imagine this scene. The Holy Spirit comes down and a voice from heaven speaks. In that moment, there would have been no doubt. This is the man, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. John received confirmation of his purpose. And the people received confirmation of their hope. And when we live a life of pointing to Jesus like John, we too will receive confirmation. Yes, there will be a cost. Yes, there will be difficult moments and questions. But when it's all said and done, we will have no doubt it was all worth it. We receive confirmation through God the Spirit, just like Jesus. First John 4 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit living, God in us. And this is one way that God confirms our salvation and our purpose. It means we're never alone. We're never rejected. We will never lose our salvation because the Holy Spirit lives in us and confirms it. But we also have confirmation from the Father. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 12. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Don't miss what Jesus says so clearly. Here's our two points. He says, you want to live for me? Hate your life. Give it up to serve and follow me. There's the cost. But here's the confirmation. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you give your life to point others to Jesus, to live for his glory, to make much of his name, you may not be the most popular you may not be successful and comfortable. You may not receive the praise of man, but you will receive honor from God himself. One day, every single one of us will stand before our Lord and give an account of our lives. And that moment, 
is summed up best by this poem from C.T. Studd. It says, only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So what's your point? What's your why? What's your reason for being? I hope, I pray that you find it's Jesus. Point to him and you will never regret it because only one life which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Would you bow your heads with me?